0: man of steel answers insight commentary episode 48 amanda waller what are you really up to i have so many questions
1: then of course there's the
2: question on everyone's mind then i'll ask the obvious question
0: start asking questions
3: you're the answer son
0: welcome to mosaic i'm your dc films apologist doc and i cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the man of steel and are excited by the justice league universe this episode the premise behind suicide squad this show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. I wasn't expecting to do another episode on Suicide Squad so soon, but I wanted to answer some questions behind the very premise of the squad. Not only does the movie directly voice them, but there's some relevant military history raised. We're also going to unravel a little of Waller to address Some common complaints. I still don't have this film memorized yet, but let's see if we can get a better picture of what Waller is thinking. I'm using the novelization to back up my memory, so if I don't get the lines exactly right, that's why. Anyways, it's funny how many people think that questioning the squad or its membership is some sort of original insight when it's in the movie. The movie itself raises these questions. It's not like the movie was oblivious, it seems a bit more oblivious to parrot rhetorical questions without an ounce of effort considering the answers. So we're going to tackle some of those frequently asked questions. Is the Suicide Squad a rational idea? Can this squad defeat a Superman? What use is Harley, Boomerang, Croc, or Katana? Why not use heroes or soldiers? What's the mission? Why couldn't Waller contain Enchantress? We're going to discuss all that and more in this episode, but let's start with Amanda Waller. Viola Davis gives one of the standout performances in this ensemble cast and has a lot to work with. Amanda Waller has a flexible history and tradition. She's been an outright villain, an anti-hero and a hero. She even serves as the wise and benevolent principal of superhero high in Mattel's DC Superhero Girls. She's been fat, then evil, morally gray, ambitious, humble, and good. She's been a mastermind, a frontline fighter, a know-nothing bureaucrat, and a no-nonsense patriot, a source of sobering gravity, and at times the comic relief. It's an incredibly versatile character, and it's a testament to the writing, casting, performance, and film that someone so potentially amorphous struck a chord with everyone. Even if you like the more benevolent versions of Waller, she almost always starts off as ruthless. So this is the right introduction to the character, with up opportunity to evolve over the course of more stories certainly it's pitch perfect for the early ostrander comics in the movie flag introduces waller to the squad
4: behold the voice of god and
0: we're almost tempted to believe it waller ends her briefing saying
4: remember i'm watching
5: i see everything
0: She seems all-knowing. She knows that Flag will fall for June. She knows about Enchantress and scoops her up first. She knows when and where to drop a dime on Deadshot. She knows what's going on in Midway when no one else does. She knows about the other metahumans out there. And she knows Batman's secret identity. She seems all-powerful. She has the power of life and death over the squad, able to snuff them out with the push of a button. She is above the law, outside ethics, beyond the boundaries of normal morality. She has the authority to fell helicopters and call platoons to her rescue. She's enslaved a former goddess and put a witch in her pocket. She seems to have nearly unlimited authority over the squad. She alludes to her orders as holy writ to flag. But don't be fooled. When we were first introduced to Waller, the soundtrack foregoes subtlety for clarity as the stones serenade us with sympathy, preempting Harley's question to Waller. Are you the devil? And making it abundantly clear, the movie makes no pretense about Waller's identity. The puzzle is, what is Waller's game? Waller answers Harley's question with, maybe, which is maybe the perfect answer for a devil. Waller plays the part of devil in so many interesting ways. The devil is also deft at lies and exaggeration and wanting to play God. Waller uses a lot of colorful, non-literal expressions to obscure the truth or exaggerate her points. Here's a sampling of some obviously non-literal expressions in Waller's dialogue. I've eaten a lot of canaries. I'm fighting fire with fire. Let's just say I put them in a hole and threw away the hole. Before she ran off and joined the circus, they became the king and queen of Gotham City. He robbed every bank in Australia. He was the king of the world, in my pocket. We throw them under the bus, kicking up rocks looking for them. Now he'll follow my orders as holy writ. Anything happens to Colonel Flagg, and I'll kill every single one of you. I see everything. My head will be on a pike. So this maybe devil has never actually eaten a canary. Bell Rev is not literally a hole. No one is fighting fire. Harley didn't join the circus and didn't become the crown queen of Gotham. Digger didn't rob every bank on a continent. Chato wasn't the crown king of LA. Enchantress isn't literally in Waller's pocket. The squad won't literally go under a bus. The US government isn't literally kicking up rocks. Waller's orders aren't literal scripture. And Waller will allow something things to happen to Flag. She only sees some things, and her head is never going to end up on an actual pike. This isn't even taking into account the lines that are likely lies. About a third of her lines can't be characterized as absolutely true. I know this seems incredibly pedantic for some expressions and exaggerations, but it's vital to understanding Waller's character and the logistics of this movie. If you take her statements as holy writ, you're gonna have problems, but if you you understand that she's making a sale and not above deception to do it, then suddenly it all makes a lot of sense. More on that a little later. Let's wrap up our comparison for more context in our analysis. Obviously on the devil, doctrines differ, but I'm sticking to modern mainstream narratives supplied by Wikipedia. The devil is the father of lies, the devil is at war, the devil has flawed rationality, and the devil suffers from unintended consequences, is limited and fallible. We've already talked about the lies, let's get to war. The Wikipedia entry says, "Quote: For most Christians, the devil is believed to be an angel who rebelled against God. The Book of Revelations describes how he was cast out of heaven, having great anger and waging war against those who obey God's commandments." End quote. So without getting too theological, the takeaway is that the devil is in a war of his own making. Similarly, the main fight in Suicide Squad is a war of Waller's making. She has a few lines to show that she's preparing for war. I want to build a team of some very bad people who I think can do some good, like fight the next war. The next war will be fought with these metahumans, ours or theirs. She uses an illustration from World War II, and when Flag says that it isn't World War II, her answer is, it's World War III. Of course, it's not one that had to happen.
1: Basically, the movie is Amanda Waller covering up her mistake, because she was the one that decided to use Enchantress... As part of the original sort of core suicide squad. So Enchantress is really the first suicide squad member. Amanda Waller deploys her to clean up this entity that appears, which, unbeknownst to Amanda, is actually Enchantress's brother, and she's engineered the escape of this entity. And the whole time, Enchantress has engineered her own escape. And then Amanda Waller decides to cover it up by, you know, having the suicide squad rescue her and get her out of that city.
0: Many critics raise this crisis of Waller's own making as if the movie was unaware of it. That's hardly the case. The movie warns Waller early on through Admiral Olson, who says, you're playing with fire, Amanda. Waller's reply, I'm fighting fire with fire. Just a quick digression, that idea first appears in Shakespeare's King John, but it doesn't become an idiom until the 1800s, where it started as a literal
6: practice. But what you don't see so often are the other strategies firefighters use to combat the inferno, fighting fire with fire. There's A couple of techniques that are commonly used, the first being controlled burning, like this one in the US. They create a firebreak by burning fuel under controlled conditions to help prevent potential future wildfires. It usually works out completely fine, but there are occasions when controlled burns burn out of control. There was one incident when the US National Park Service set off a controlled fire and 200 homes ended up being destroyed. The next technique is backburning. It might seem counterintuitive to light a fire to put out a fire, but this method used quite regularly. The theory is that you burn up all the fuel in the fire's path and cut off its advance. The movie
0: acknowledges and is aware of the inherent risks. Everybody knows that there's a risk of being burned. They know that it might backfire. That doesn't make the action unbelievable, implausible, or unlikely any more than the actual practice of fighting fire with fire. If we look at the devil, he is the adversary. He knows rebellion risks being tossed into the fire. He does so any way. And to that we can say that the devil has flawed rationality. The devil knows that he's up against God, but he's able to deceive himself into believing that he can take over, to believe that he has a shot or a chance, to believe that it's the right course of action to secure all of creation's adoration. Really, the whole thing makes sense as long as you forget that, well, God is God. Waller has a similar hubris and blind spot. So goes the proverb, pride goes before a She has complete confidence in her ability to maintain control over her thralls. Despite wanting to be worshipped as supreme, the devil is limited and fallible, and so too is Waller. No question, she is feared, powerful, connected, and more aware than most, but she still needs help and still makes mistakes. Even with high clearance, Waller still needs a lot of help to get Task Force X off the ground. She needs Batman to put away her recruits, she needs the Admiral's endorsement, and Tolliver to pitch the project to convince the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Waller needs flag in the field. Waller needs to be rescued. Waller needs Wayne's protection in the end. She needs help and isn't omnipotent. Waller ends up wrong about securing Enchantress, about sending Enchantress in, and about staying in the city. Waller is mistaken about the next war given that the enemy comes from within and not without. As a matter of principle and practice, Waller is mistaken in putting so much faith in leverage. So Waller is fallible, just like all of us. Critics like to point out Waller's mistakes as if they are screenwriting errors, but Waller's fallibility is intentionally baked right into the film. That said, I don't think the critics always grasp the difference between what Waller is selling and what she actually believes. Before we get into the details of her pitch, let's give some context to who she's pitching to. Critics repeatedly raise their disbelief at Waller's project, and without historical context, it's easy to criticize, poke holes, and make fun of. But to me, the critic is just exposing their own lack of domain knowledge in this area of real world history. We don't have to dive deep at all to come across a plethora of absolutely insane, outlandish, bizarre, and risky military projects. And that's just the declassified ones that we know about.
2: In the early desperate days of World War II, Allied leaders were presented with a stream of weird ideas. Dropping bombs into Vesuvius to provoke an eruption to destroy southern Italy. Releasing poisonous snakes in Berlin to terrify the German people. Spraying Hitler's garden with a hormone to change his sex. An extraordinary array of new weapons dreamed up by both sides most Inventive minds. Weird weapons unlike anything used in warfare before. New ways of bringing destruction to the enemy, born of desperation and wild imagination. And when the world had gone mad, nothing seemed too strange to try. An unsinkable, indestructible aircraft carrier made from solid ice, floating in the middle of the Atlantic. American bats, trained to carry tiny incendiary bombs designed to set fire to entire Japanese cities. Bombs so unbelievably large and powerful, they could bury themselves on the ground and trigger
0: earthquakes. And believe me, that isn't even scratching the surface. We have tried to weaponize everything from bats, cats, dogs, dolphins, pigeons, flowers, and fruit. These projects bear names like Project X-Ray, Project Acoustic Kitty, Stargate, Operation Argus, Project Starfish Prime, Project Iceworm, Edgewood Arsenal, Peacekeeper Rail Garrison, and countless others. It's also easy to dismiss these as just theoretical moonshots with with head-in-the-clouds thinking, something on the back of a napkin that no one sane ever took seriously. But that's not the case. These weren't flights of fancy. These were sincere military projects, authorized at the highest level, heavily invested to, and iterated to the point of near execution. I've picked out just two to highlight briefly, one plan authorized by Winston Churchill himself, and the other proven effective, but pulled because of the advent of the atomic bomb. What was need- was a mid-Atlantic floating
2: platform to serve as an airbase to defend the convoys. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill ordered his staff to put their minds to the problem. Geoffrey Pike came up with an extraordinary and improbable solution, cut out a section of an iceberg and tow it to the mid-Atlantic. To use as a floating airfield, the idea was seized upon with enthusiasm. Churchill was so taken by the concept, he said, the advantages of a floating island are so dazzling, at the moment they do not need to be discussed. It would almost have been a floating town. It would have been big enough to have 150 aircraft on it at any one time. An extraordinary structure. But to build something of this magnitude out of ice, he would need help. Churchill approached the Canadian prime minister, Mackenzie King, and persuaded him to build a prototype one-tenth the size of the intended ice ship. Work began at the beginning of winter, late in 1942, at Patricia Lake in northern Canada.
7: Setting up the prototype was to just see if it was feasible. Could you keep a block of ice that large frozen? Would it, in fact, float at the level you wanted the float out. And it worked.
2: They kept the ice frozen with refrigeration equipment that they installed on board, and it lasted all through the winter and all through the following summer. Churchill's mind was made up. An indestructible ship made from pykrete was a weapon which could win him the war. It was to be called Habakkuk. After an Old Testament prophet, Churchill was so excited, he wanted not just one ship, but a fleet of a hundred. I think there were several reasons why the project was abandoned. Firstly, it was bonkers, and I doubt whether it would ever have really worked. But I think secondly, and most importantly, The war was drawing to a close. Aircraft technology was rapidly improving. And the need for a staging post halfway across the pond was beginning to disappear.
5: Reluctantly, Churchill cancelled the project. Convinced of the bat bomb's potential, the Marine Corps launches Project X-Ray. And the team starts putting the finishing touches to their weapon. Doc Adams has designed a purpose-built bombshell. The five-foot container will hold over a thousand bats snoozing in separate compartments on 26 trays the bomb would be dropped from high altitude. At 4,000 feet, a barometric device deploys a parachute and the outer casing simultaneously falls away. The trays open like an accordion, freeing the bats from their compartments. As they take flight, a hair-thin wire arms the incendiaries, primed to go off in 30 minutes. In December 1943, the bat bomb is readied for testing, to be dropped over a replica Japanese town built in the desert. There was quite a crowd there, mostly high-ranking observers. The weapon is taken up in a bomber and released. It works perfectly. The bats disperse and hide under eaves and in attics, just as expected. Observers get to work comparing the bat bomb to conventional incendiaries. There may have been skepticism before, but what they find is impressive. Just how effective became apparent during tests at Carlsbad Army
2: Airfield, New Mexico. Some bats carrying live incendiaries escaped and within minutes the base was in flames. The bats performed perfectly. The military were impressed. And here's what they wrote. It is concluded that the bat bomb is an
0: effective weapon. These projects show how open the military can be to outlandish ideas. While these didn't see action, many other prototypes and projects did make it out to the theater of war, alongside conventional forces. Some of these were complete and utter disasters, like attempting to create an aerial minefield using rocket-launched parachuting munitions. The field obviously couldn't persist, the parachutes made them easy to spot and avoid, and what goes up must come down onto your own forces. But many of these almost pulled it off, even if it wasn't the best idea. Of 32 brand new amphibious tanks launched onto Omaha Beach on D-Day, just six made it to shore. In every case, you could propose a more conservative or conventional alternative. Why then is the military so open to moonshots and innovation? It goes back to something illustrated by the story of David and Goliath. Waller makes mention of Goliath in one version of her White House pitch as a weapon of mass destruction.
4: We've all heard the stories of Samson leveling a temple with a single push, or the Philistine weapon of mass destruction named Goliath.
0: And you can see why Goliath fits the bill. He's the perfect linear progression of what makes an effective soldier. What separates a soldier from a civilian in an age with conscription is his equipment. An armored man is better off than an unarmored one. And the bigger and the stronger man can carry thicker and heavier armor, while still being a viable weapons platform. So the biggest and strongest man is going to be the pinnacle of that linear progression. Anyone smaller, anyone weaker, is going to have weaker armor and inferior force behind their blows. This is why the Philistines are so confident in their champion. And locked into that linear kind of thinking, that's why when a shepherd boy David bravely volunteers, the Israelites initially attempted to close the gap along the same progression. They put David in the king's arms and armor. But after Trying them on, David declines them. His only preparation is to find five smooth stones in the stream, and you know what happens. David uses his sling to slay the giant and win the day. It's a lateral move and victory. Imagine all that the Philistines had invested into Goliath, the cost of his armor, bringing him up, his training, and placing all of their certainty and faith into him, all upended by a humble, low-cost alternative. And that's what the military is worried about. The military is a highly organized institution that knows that it has a weakness for conventional thinking, inflexible rigidity and the bad habit of fighting the last war. History is filled with conventional wisdom leading to disaster on the battlefield. The military is worried it will be as confident as the French at Agincourt, outnumbering the English 3-1 to and losing to the longbow. The military is worried that it will blindly sink a billion dollars into a Goliath program, just to have it brought down by a humble herdsman. The military is worried about angles of attack and innovations they haven't grasped yet. The novelization has a great Superman screwed up the notion of conventional wisdom. In a period like that, the military is incredibly open to pilot programs. And it works. For every 10 floating iceberg fortresses and bat bomb projects, there are one or two incredible breakthroughs. Limiting myself to the arena of aviation, at the beginning of World War II, we were still fighting in biplanes. But by the end, we had jet fighters flying just under the sound barrier. Not to mention a single invention. The atomic bomb would reshape the world forever. To this day, the military is often at the cutting edge of innovation. It served them well. So there's a low bar on the sanity of pitches. And if you involve the intelligence agencies, spycraft, and spooks like Waller, even pigeon bombs are more sane than the spoon-bending, remote-viewing projects of the CIA. Considering what has actually received historical approval in the past, in a post-Superman world with metahumans on the table, is a penal military unit really that unlikely? likely. The real world has penal military units. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's not a new or novel idea. The concept is found in the 1967 film, The Dirty Dozen.
4: Major Reisman, you are ordered by Allied Command to select 12 general prisoners. Convicted by courts martial and sentenced to be executed or serve lengthy prison terms for murder, rape, robbery and other crimes of violence. And you will deliver them
2: secretly behind enemy lines in France to undertake a mission of sabotage that could change the course of the war. The 12 men will be known as the Dirty Dozen.
4: You've all volunteered for a mission which gives you just three ways to go. Either you can follow up in training and be shipped back here for immediate execution of sentence, or you can follow up in combat, in which case I will personally blow your brains out, or you can do as you're told, in which case you might just get by. Train them, arm them, and turn them loose on the Nazi high command.
0: So with that background in place, let's look at Waller's pitch. She basically makes it three times. First at the restaurant, second at the White House, and third arguing with Flag after auditions. There's a million things I would love to break down in all these scenes, but let's try to keep it focused on Waller's sales pitch. We open with Waller's voiceover. The world changed when Superman flew across the sky. Then it changed again when he didn't. There are many more romantic ways to interpret those lines, but for the purpose of the pitch, I'm going to say that it calls Waller out as an opportunist. Superman showing up showed the world potential threats, and then his death meant that he wouldn't be there to save them from those threats. And in that period of fear and uncertainty, it's Waller's opportunity to strike. Some want to read the lines as sentimental, but when Waller sees a t-shirt commemorating Superman's death, she smiles. Happily. Apparently, it's an expression she can't wipe off her face because Admiral Olson calls her out on it. We lose a national hero, but you sit there looking like the cat that ate the canary. Olsen is saying that without their hero, they're less secure, but Waller is plainly pleased by the situation. If she was truly about national security, why isn't she mourning like the rest of us? Waller is proud of her roundup, and Olsen raises the rumors. There's
8: rumors, Amanda, that some of them have
0: abilities. Okay, let's pause there. In a little bit, we'll see that this isn't the first time that Waller has made this sales pitch and that Olsen has already heard it before. This line shows that he's in the know and has an inkling of what she's proposing. But the word that I want to focus on is some. Some of them have abilities. Some, not all, not they have abilities. That means that Olsen isn't expecting an entirely metahuman team. It likely means that Waller didn't pitch an entirely metahuman team in the past. It means that an entirely metahuman team is beside the point, and criticisms about the non meta members are misplaced. That isn't what Waller was selling, what the White House was buying, and what the squad is about. If anything, metahumans are the problem, which is how Waller answers. You know what the problem with a metahuman is? The human part. We got lucky with Superman. He shared our values. The next Superman might not. So Waller is working her sales pitch. She points out that meta power isn't an inherent problem except for the person wielding that power. She didn't let Olsen's national hero line go unnoticed. Instead, she affirms them. And by saying our values puts herself in with Olsen and Superman. The our values line is also part of the explanation for why Waller doesn't assemble heroes but more on that later. finishes by tweaking that fear and uncertainty. Superman's gone, what will we do? What if the next one's evil? We have already talked about the fire lines. Olsen then properly raises doubts and risks. Olson says, You're not gonna pitch us that Task Force X project of yours again, are you? So it's important to highlight that Waller has made this pitch before, that it was rejected, and that they already know and are skeptical of it. Critics act as if the military adopted it without hesitation. But this is Waller's second pitch at least, and if it was a bad idea, once, why would they bite this time? What changed? Two things. First, Waller seems to have gathered more exceptional candidates this time around, and second, Superman's dead. Waller's first pitch must have come before Superman was known, or while Superman was active. In the first case, there's not enough of a threat to justify the project, and in the second, Superman is there to save the day. Superman, the national hero, a century of security gone, unable to answer the threats that are a job for Superman in a world world, where more and more threats of that nature are appearing. This gives Waller yet another reason not to recruit otherwise hidden heroes. Putting them out there and into the light is paramount to Superman flying across the sky again. It puts Waller right back into the position that she was in before, someone with an ambitious project that no one wants or needs, because Superman will take care of it. Only this time it's the Flash or some other heroic metahuman. So she launches into the dossier, and when you watch the film again, pay special attention to just how hard she's spinning their attributes to make them maybe more than they are. The most obvious push is with Captain Boomerang saying something like, he tangled with a meta and lived to talk about it. And I just have to briefly digress at how that's an insight into this world. Whether Waller knows how Flash operates or not, she's selling it under the assumption that metas are threats and will kill. And Olsen might buy this because Flash apparently doesn't have a reputation one way or the other for letting people live or using lethal force. That shows what the default thinking is, and it reinforces the point that the superhero is still a new thing. The same assumptions that we have about them don't exist in this world on a public level yet. I point out the hard sell and the hyperbole because it makes it easier to reconcile issues later if you aren't taking Waller at her word 100%. Another part of the dossier that I'd like to highlight is the secret buried heart. The line begins with, some say, which means that Waller is reliant on the rules as they were related to her. Enchantress is her own episode, but the point is that Waller is falling back on proven lore until it fails.
3: Meet the Enchantress. Everything we know about her is in your briefing packs.
0: For all of Enchantress's power, the end of the day, she was still subdued by primitive prehistoric people. At least... That would be Waller's understanding of what went down. In the novelization and by the end of the film, you might have an inkling of others intervening on humanity's behalf to rein in non-human entities in unwritten histories. Waller comes from an era of machine worship, which makes it impossible for her to imagine Neolithic people as more capable of containing enchantress. Finally, many mock attempting to exploit something not fully understood. But that's what humanity does. We wielded atomic might long before we fully understood it. The medical field is filled with treatments that work, but with little understanding of why. We've engaged in scientific endeavors which dove into the unknown and which could have caused catastrophe. Some believe the first nuclear explosion would ignite our atmosphere. Some believe that SETI sending out signals is inviting a hostile alien invasion. From Waller's perspective, not only has Enchantress been contained in the past, but she was given a playbook on how to control it. A contingency if it escaped, and as every day passed, her confidence in control grew. The timeline is a little fuzzy, but Waller has had Enchantress under control for at least as long as it takes Flag to fall for Dr. Moon. Then again, Flag was hugging Deadshot by the end, so maybe he falls fast and hard. <laughs> Of course, even after her pitch, the Admiral is still skeptical.
1: You want to put our national security in the hands of witches, gangbangers, and crocodiles. Don't forget about the Joker's
0: girlfriend. And it drives me nuts that critics raise this exact same question as if the film didn't. Olsen challenges her ability to control them, and Walla's reply is with how she turned a patriot into her puppet. She closes the conversation saying, In a world of flying men and monsters, this is the only way to protect our country. Again, Waller plays the part of Devil. The Devil exploits opportunities when you're weak, uncertain, afraid, vulnerable, and susceptible to temptation. To do something you know is wrong, but still justify to yourself. Superman is not the actual reason. Superman is just the sales pitch. Remember that Waller's first failed pitch didn't work without a departed Superman. Now, it isn't my intention to be coy about the actual reason. I'm just going through the film as it's presented. We don't know the actual reason yet. We just know that the uncertainty and insecurity around Superman's death has opened the door to be persuaded by this pitch. And that's why Tolliver opens his White House intro with a Superman hypothetical. So let's get to that White House pitch. Just so you have an idea of the setting, here's some background on the White House Situation Room.
8: shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere
2: as an attack.
9: It was the disastrous
2: Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961 that prompted President John F. Kennedy to create the Situation Room as a way to improve real-time communications, current intelligence, and crisis support.
7: We're here in the West Wing of the White House inside the White House Situation Room. It's a state-of-the-art facility. They had a voracious appetite for information. They felt the desire to create a communication center here within the White House. So throughout the White House Situation Room, you have a number of phone tubes, or we call them Superman tubes. We're a fusion center, meaning that we fuse approximately 2,000 pieces of information every day. We produce three daily reports directly for the president. The room that you see behind me is called the Surge Room, And that's where we literally surge personnel in a crisis. We keep the phones and the computers always on and start fusing information to provide a summary for the decision makers in the White House so that they can make the decisions in response to that situation or crisis. One third of the personnel come from the intelligence community. One third come from the Department of Homeland Security. And the remainder come from the U.S. military.
0: Executive authority is important because war powers over terrorism and sentencing create the questionable loopholes which enable the Suicide Squad. Traditionally in the comics, Amanda Waller has interacted with several US presidents, usually unhappy with her scheming but at the same time the ultimate source of her authority. They allow and tolerate her because, like the Situation Room, she addresses our fears. Be they nuclear war, communism, or terrorism, fear which may seem to strip us of our prudence. Kubrick's Dr. Strange Love* satirizes the absurdities of the Red Scare. This movie also touches on something similar, with a more straight face than Kubrick's black comedy. Suicide Squad makes mention of legislation, leveraging the terrorist label to suspend ordinary civil rights. That's our real world, our current state of affairs. That's an endless topic all on its own, we won't get into it, but again, it shows how we can succumb to temptation, even against our better angels. Tolliver plays with the room's powerlessness with a supposedly evil Superman.
5: Gentlemen, ladies, what if Superman had decided to fly down, rip off the roof of the White House, grab the president right out of the Oval Office? Who would have stopped him?
0: It's a fear that immediately grabs their attention. Waller's plan is a team that might fight the next war or defeat the next Superman. This line has caused endless consternation and challenges to the makeup and the membership of the team. Questions and criticisms of how and whether this team stands a chance against Superman, what their individual utility is or isn't against an evil non-human entity. And I'll say it again, it's just the sales pitch. There are not serious plans for the entire team to ever take on Superman on its own. However, that's the framing device for greenlighting the initial stages of the squad. No one expects an iceberg ship or bat bombs or even legitimate atomic bombs to end the war outright from the beginning on their own with no conventional alternatives or support. Nevertheless, those were all greenlit, pursued, and even used with the intention of bringing about a quicker conclusion to the war. That said, at this point in time, Waller's squad includes Enchantress, and it's arguable that Enchantress has capabilities that rival a Superman sort of entity. That's who Waller sends when Midway is attacked, and from that perspective, her pitch is sound. The other members still have their point and purpose if we wanted to be pedantic about it within the pitch meaning that Waller has to justify each and every member in the context of a sales meeting. We could say, as an intelligence officer, Waller knows what happened in Nairobi. She knows how a non-metahuman, Lex Luthor, was able to twist, manipulate, and affect the world's most powerful man. So even from the perspective of her pitch, non-metas can be useful against a Superman threat. But really, that entire argument is irrelevant at this point, because no one in the Situation Room is asking about, discussing, or challenging challenging the qualifications of the non-medhuman members. That isn't even a concern raised, because the Situation Room is about condensation, focus and fusion, getting to the heart of the matter and getting to the point. They know that the efficacy of any individual member isn't really the issue on the table. The chairman is unfazed and unconvinced. Individuals with his security clearance level are privy to unimaginable daily threats to national security, all seeking attention as potentially world-ending. His first concerns are the consequences, exposure, and optics. He says, not on my watch, you're not putting those monsters back out onto the streets in our name. The So to break it down, first, he's declining the plan. Second, he's reasserting that they're bad people and monsters. He's expecting something to go wrong. Third, he's expecting them to be used in public, to be in the streets and to be connected to their name. Waller answers that they'll be covert, non-attributed, and thrown under the bus.
4: They get caught, we throw them under the bus.
0: And this line is routinely misunderstood as the point of the suicide squad. Waller is simply answering the chairman's objection and his concerns. She isn't saying that Black Ops is the entire reason for the Squad's existence, and that they'll only run Covert Ops. If you think about Tolliver's hypothetical, it's clear that that isn't her proposal. Superman kidnapping POTUS would be public. Zod's invasion was public. Doomsday was public. Midway City was public, sort of. If the Squad actually intends to engage metahuman threats on that scale, they will be public. What Waller is doing in her answer is giving the Chairman plausible deniability. If the issue ever comes up, she's addressing his fears and doing a brilliant setup for her actual, unspoken sales pitch embedded within. By saying if they get caught, she's already implying that the intended missions aren't saving the world from Zod or Doomsday. Missions that no one would disagree with. Exposure on such a mission wouldn't constitute being caught. Ever so subtly, without saying it, Waller is saying that they're going to be going on missions where getting caught is an issue. Yet by saying we throw them under the bus, she's providing the answer for that issue, while planting the idea that these are second class individuals that they can do with as they please. That they're disposable and that's okay. In her next breath, she gets at the heart of a more grounded point to this plan.
1: The next war will be fought with these metahumans. Ours, or theirs.
0: Waller has laid out an arms race and is proposing getting a head start on it. Feeds into that ever-present fear of the military fighting the last war and of missing out on the next innovation intended to change the face of war, of giving up that advantage to other nations. It's meaningless to build armies out of metal against a meta who can manipulate it with their mind. It's folly to try to guard intelligence that can be extracted telepathically. It's impossible to build secure spaces against teleporters. The arms race has the chairman intrigued, but he goes on to his next argument. You know we can't control these people. Well, Waller allows Enchantress to illustrate the counter-argument. Again, the chairman is unimpressed by the transformation. We can only imagine what crosses his desk. However, what he is impressed by is what Enchantress retrieves. How about a little something from the weapons ministry vault in Tehran? We've
2: been chasing these plans for years.
0: Waller's public elevator pitch is national security. Emergent emergency self-defense against Superman. It's the stick which hits on their fears and where they're justified in preparing. But the stick doesn't stick with the chairman who faces daily threats to our nation. What hooks him is the carrot the unspoken pitch, the silent suggestion that Task Force X is really about marshalling and abusing metahuman powers to their own advantage. Waller showed that with the gift of the no longer secure plans. Those plans had been chased for years. They were not a clear and present danger in the immediate temporal sense. America wouldn't be harmed if you didn't get them tomorrow or the next day or the next month or perhaps ever. It's more of a luxury or comfort, the security of knowledge. Brush away the fog of war so you can sleep at night. Waller didn't win anyone over with the anti-Superman plan or the insecurity of their nation. She won them over with the exploit and the complete and utter advantage over their enemies. The anti-Superman plan is just a surface-level public pitch. The real, unspoken pitch is the promise of being both Goliath and David to be the supreme conventional unstoppable force, but also on the cutting edge of the low-cost unexpected lateral innovation and advantage. That advantage is simply too tempting to pass on, and Task Force X is a go. Just a quick note on the please don't touch me joke. Now, obviously that was funny, but it also shows that Enchantress responds to fearlessness. Anyways, moving on to Waller's third and final pitch, which comes after the cheerleader tryouts. We're going to skim these tryout scenes, but they're probably some of my favorite in the entire film. It's interesting to see how insightful the three inmates interacting with Waller are. They all seem to see Waller coming from a mile away in their own way. Harley identifies Waller as the devil. Chato declines the unasked question and says, I ain't no weapon. Floyd recognizes Waller as the boss. Waller tries to tempt Floyd into shooting Griggs and again tries to tempt him into taking Harley's life. Griggs mentions that he's known Floyd for nine months and if Waller dropped a dime on Deadshot then that means she's been planning this for at least that long. Note that up to this point Waller hasn't done anything explicitly evil to them yet the fact that the inmates have a sixth sense about Waller is almost as if they recognize one of their own. Another bad person within these walls that just happens to be free, not by virtue of virtue, but by way of vice. Their suspicion also sets up stakes later in the film for some push and pull between the squad and Waller and questions on who's right when no one's righteous. And just two more quick comments about Deadshot's scene. When he turns the rifle on its side, that's because he's using the backup iron sights instead of the electronic reflex sight. It's showing that Deadshot's accuracy is his own ability and not just gadgets and technological augmentation like when we saw in his hit against the would-be witness. That said, my second comment is that, for now, in my headcanon, Deadshot is absolutely a metahuman. His level of accuracy isn't just superhuman, it's impossible. You could lock those guns into a ransom rest, essentially a vice-like device for testing accuracy of guns and ammunition, and you wouldn't achieve accuracy like his. So this little scene is helping to either redefine what training and expertise can do for you in this universe, that is, essentially give you what would be superpowers in our world, or it's establishing that Deadshot has superpowers. I'm electing to believe the latter until something contradicts it. Okay, on to the third and final pitch between Waller and Flag. This is a scene that needs to be played on repeat for any critic that presents questions about the composition of the squad. Here's that scene.
4: You notice these are criminals? Hmm? Psychotic, antisocial freaks. It makes no sense.
0: Let me hit the
2: tier
5: one units and I'll build your team of pipe hitters. They'll do anything you can dream up. I mean, you need real soldiers, not these scumbags. In
3: World War II, the U.S. Navy made a deal with the Mafia to protect its ships on the waterfront.
4: This ain't World War II. It's World War III. What are you really up to? It's a need to know, and all
5: you need to know is you work for me.
0: Did you hear that? Flag says it makes no sense. Flag offers elite soldiers as an alternative. Critics constantly act as if they're the first ones to offer conventional soldiers as the superior alternative when it's right there in the movie. Flag did it for them. Did they watch the film? Did they pay attention? Did they think that they were the first ones to point out the absurdity of putting national security in the hands of Joker's girlfriend? Or are they ignoring how it was raised With Waller right away. It's in the bloody TV spots. But what sets Flag apart from the critics is that he actually thinks it through at least one more step. Instead of assuming that Waller is a fool, when he realizes that it makes no sense, he concludes that there must be more to Waller's agenda than meets the eye. That's why he says, What are you really up to? And Waller all but confirms his suspicions. It's a need to know, means that there's actually a larger motive and plan behind Task Force X than what was pitch. The sales pitch is not the actual point. The actual point, the true purpose, what Waller is really up to is above even Flag's pay grade. And he was right there in the situation room hearing the high-level pitch. He likely even understood the unspoken pitch being made. However, Waller is all but saying that there's an even higher purpose that he's not cleared to know. The fact that the ultimate reason is unspoken and unknown may be frustrating at this juncture for some, But, first, this is an ongoing universe where we should expect and want to see more of Argus and Waller in the future, to reveal more along the line. Second, it isn't necessary for the sake of enjoying this film. And third, I think it introduces an incredibly intriguing puzzle for people like me who love to chew on our food. What we found really interesting is that people never want uncertainty. They eschew it. They pay good money not to have it. We did a study in which people watched a movie, and for some of the people in our experiment, we didn't let them watch how the movie ended. We didn't let them see what happened to the main character. Now, if I asked you which of these two movies would you rather see, 100% of the hands go up and say, I'd like to see the end of the movie, please. But what we discovered was people who didn't see the end of the movie liked it more, thought about it for longer, were still engaged in it and still enjoying it even
5: hours or days later. They didn't see what happened with the main character in the end, and so they kept wondering, gosh, I wonder if he went to college or he became a football player. What an interesting thing to be thinking about and enjoying. So the point is that a little bit of uncertainty can make you very happy, but
0: we never seem to want it. If we go back over Waller's lines, actions, and dialogue, we might be able to piece together a picture of that alternative intention that accounts for Harley on the squad. There's hints of it in the fact that Waller had a first failed pitch. There's hints of it in why Waller won't use heroes. There's hints of it in her unspoken pitch in the Situation Room. There's hints of it in why she stayed behind, and in her lines when she's rescued. There's hints of it in trying to tempt Deadshot into killing. And there's a hint in her mid credit scene with Bruce Wayne. We'll take a stab at trying to understand what Waller is really after. But before we do, we have to look at Waller's last attempted argument. When Flag argues soldiers instead of scumbags, Waller cites historical precedent and context. She glibly puts them in World War 3 and talks about the military collaboration with the mafia. This isn't something just made up for the movie. That's real world history. Let's take a brief look at that history for some reasons that Waller might be borrowing to justify her
9: pitch. Charles Lucky Luciano was the father of modern organized crime. A pimp, racketeer, and murderer. In 1936, he was sentenced to serve 50 years in jail. That was where he was meant to die. But instead, he spent just 10 years there and died a free man in Italy. Crucial to all this, were the New York docks. But from the minute the US entered the war, ships leaving and entering New York came under attack. Unable to stem the destruction, Naval intelligence officers were convinced of one thing. The German spies had infiltrated the docks and were signaling to U-boats offshore, they must be tracked down. The trouble was, the docks were off limits. They were the territory of the mafia. The Naval intelligence agents were stonewalled. No one in the docks would say anything without Luciano's approval. Then one afternoon, disaster struck. The Normandy went up in flames emergency vehicles rushed to the scene. It was the biggest gathering of emergency services on American soil since the war had begun. For six hours, the Normandy burned. Was this the work of German saboteurs? Had some of the Italian-American dockers been fascist sympathizers? America was increasingly obsessed with this enemy within. The event, however, remained shrouded in mystery until Lucky Luciano made a sensational claim. He declared that his men were responsible for torching the Normandy, that it was the work of his henchmen Luciano's was not the same as the official version of events. In their investigation of the incident, the US government had come to a different conclusion. The Normandy was an unfortunate accident caused by civilian incompetence. It was decided that the fire had been started by rogue sparks from a workman's blowtorch. Whatever the truth behind the event, the Normandy disaster would prove to be the beginning of one of the most peculiar relationships of World War II. The burning of the Normandy certainly did get the Navy scared. It fueled the fear that that their ships were targets for sabotage.
5: The burning of the Normandy was a catalyst, really, for the United States naval intelligence to get serious about dealing with gangsters. And Commander Haffington, in particular, said he'd be happy to talk to the devil if that is what it takes to take care of the New York dogs.
9: Haffington launched one of the most secret missions of the war, an operation called Underworld, that would see the United States elite turn to the mob for help. But Luciano came to a decision.
8: And he said, yes, I'll help.
9: With Luciano's blessing, word went out that the mob wanted the dockers to pull together to help the war effort. The Mafia's message was clear. No more ships are to be burned. The order was obeyed completely. From the point at which the Mafia pledged their help to the U.S. government, there were no more incidents on the waterfront. The docks ran smoothly for the duration of the war. U.S. Navy intelligence was now committed to working with public enemy number one. One of their leading officers, Anthony Maslow, recalled,
8: Anyone who could make a contribution to help us was used. Whether it was Luciano, whether it was Bugsy Siegel, whether it was Costello, whether it was Maya Lansky, yes. Abies Willman, yes. Mike Lascari, yes. All of them.
9: It also clearly states that US Naval Intelligence had no doubts about the morality of dealing with known criminals. America was, after all, fighting for her life.
5: The exploitation of informants, irrespective of their backgrounds, is not only desirous, but necessary when the nation is struggling for its existence. Intelligence, as such, is to prevent and must encompass any and all means. By any and all means, I include the so-called underworld. The full
0: story is even more compelling and involves the invasion of Sicily and the rise of the mafia in the power vacuum. But that's beyond the scope of this show. So it's important to see that there are actually three different narratives in the sinking of the Normandy. There's what everyone feared, that it was sabotage and an enemy within. There's what Luciano claimed, that he masterminded the matter to secure his deal with the military. And then there's the official version, that it was simply an unfortunate accident. Nonetheless, even if there's a disparity between the story and the truth, the actions taken were the same. It doesn't matter if there's an actual evil Superman to fear. It doesn't matter if the squad can actually fight him. The government wants in on the metahuman arms race, and this is their excuse to do it. Also, Luciano in his heyday was actually worse than some of the squad. Don't let the feel-good collaboration from the Rocketeer romanticize this for you. The US government knew who and what they were dealing with. Note that this entire project was classified and had a codename Project Underworld. I didn't put it in the clip, but there were even reports that the US military armed and supplied the mafia. And that ties into the point that this was a pragmatic, by any means possible situation. It is far and away not ideal or idealistic, but it turned a liability into an asset to avoid fighting a war on two fronts. This is the historical precedent that Waller wants to convince Flag with. But he points out that they're not at war. Waller smiles and says that they are. When you're at war, You take radical steps to ensure victory, and you are willing to make unspeakable compromises. Earlier, we discussed the history of innovation and experimentation during World War II, but we shouldn't just romanticize that explosive period of innovation. Rockets, radios, plastics, and atomic energy weren't the only products of desperation-driven innovation. The dark side of desperation was unethical human testing, and many other compromises and sins too many to list.
3: We have news this morning of a startling episode in U.S. history. It's a moment when the United States military experimented on its own troops with mustard gas. It
2: happened during World War II. The U.S. was trying to prepare for any possible gas attacks by the Axis powers. And for many years now, the U.S. has acknowledged those experiments on unknowing Americans.
3: What we have today are even more troubling details. The World War II experiments exposed African-American, Japanese-American, and Puerto Rican troops to chemical weapons. And they
2: sought to find racial differences that could be exploited on the battlefield. Caitlin Dickerson reports.
10: After basic training, Edwards was enrolled in a secret program to test the effects of mustard gas on humans. The testing was brutal. Some days, he says he was locked inside of a wooden gas chamber with about a dozen other black soldiers. A mixture of mustard gas and a similar agent called lewisite were piped inside. Edwards says he didn't have a choice. He had to participate, and if he told anyone about the experiments, his Commanding officers said he'd go to prison.
8: They said we would be tested to see what effect these gases
5: would have on black Excuse.
10: The U.S. military tested more than 60,000 World War II troops in secret experiments. These tests were formally declassified in 1993. Until now, the military has never acknowledged these race-based tests. White Americans were used in these experiments. They served as control groups. Their reactions were used to establish what was, quote, normal and compared to the minority soldiers. Military documents show more than 100 experiments were done on San Jose Island. Not all of those experiments focused focused on race. But the US government does have a history of race-based experimentation. The most infamous were the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, where treatment was withheld from black sharecroppers so researchers could watch the disease. Dorothy Roberts is a professor of bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She pointed to similarities between the Tuskegee subjects and the minority soldiers used in these tests. They were expendable, disposable, allegedly because of their biological difference, but it mirrors in all of these cases their social and political status in U.S. society at the time. His arms and legs are covered with thick scabs the size of pancakes, and he scratches them until they bleed. His skin falls off in flakes that pile up on the floor. For years, he carried around a jar of those flakes to try to convince people of what happened to him. Until now, government officials have never acknowledged these experiments.
0: This was just one of countless failures to live up to our ideals. the sake of security. Waller is looking at convicts as expendable liabilities, subjects to use, test, and throw away. And I think that's at least part of what Waller is really after. At the end of the film, Waller scoffs at Bruce's belief. She says, That's the difference between us. You believe in friendship? I believe in leverage. And a quick tangent. In BVS, Bruce says, I'm a friend of your son. In Suicide Squad, he says, I like making friends. In Justice League, he's got to be beaming inside when Barry says, I need friends. I totally expect a super friends joke somewhere in Justice League now. Okay, back to Waller's belief in leverage. This is akin to a religious belief or confidence in leverage. It's not just a factual acceptance of the existence of leverage. It's not that Waller doesn't believe friendship exists in the world. It's not that the devil doesn't think God exists. It's that Waller believes in leverage as supreme over friendship, just as the devil has misled himself into believing that he could be supreme over God. Waller seems to be searching for leverage. She settles on convicts because they're second-class citizens or worse when they get tagged a terrorist. And to me, the point of the program, as initially pitched, wasn't to put down metahumans but to conscript convicts. Why? A good way to answer this is to address the common complaint about not creating teams of heroes. Waller already knows about Katana, Flash, Aquaman, and Batman. Why not compel them to serve national security instead of criminals, freaks, and scumbags? Well, first, the heroes already share our values. They're heroes because they're already doing good, and if they're not criminals, then at least they're not doing bad. Applying leverage to them risks turning an asset into an enemy, a net ill to our national security. Second, it puts them out into the light, which undermines Waller's bid for personal power. We already showed how this all came about because of an opportune moment in time. If the heroes are out there, people will come to rely on them, and not Waller and her plans. Waller is also committed to keeping this power in her own pocket. It wouldn't have done any good, but Waller could have turned over Enchantress's heart to be monitored or guarded 24-7 by other people. But Waller took on the task because it's important to her to wield the power. Third, making heroes a part of the government gives them authority and legitimacy. Heroes are called heroes for a reason. Once they're heroes, they don't do black ops, they aren't covert, and the tie between the government and them is harder to deny. They're not as expendable. You can't leverage heroes as easily as villains. Heroes are willing to die for their principles. The threat of death alone probably isn't enough to ensure compliance. By contrast, credit cards and commutations may work wonders on convicts. Fourth, they may share values broadly, but they may have an imperfect alignment of interests and values. A hero may not be willing to accept by any means possible. And this is one of the reasons that Katana is compatible with the squad, in ways that, say, the Flash is not. Katana has the moral flexibility to mind the squad. When we first see her, she's coming from a war with organized crime. Her scene ends with her executing a man saying, criminals deserve no mercy. Katana is already of the mindset that criminals can be killed at will. She
5: cut all you in
2: half with one sword stroke, just like mowing the lawn.
0: By comparison, Flash left Boomerang alive and well. And if he's a mainstream American, he's not going to look kindly on conscripted slaves or the kinds of missions that they would get. Even if the Flash could zip in and out of a foreign weapons ministry vault, there's real questions about whether he'd be willing to do so simply on Waller's whim. Fifth, and finally, like with the Mafia, focusing on heroes means fighting a war on two fronts. Heroes would fight the world-ending non-human entities, but they would also end up fighting the villains, a net loss of national security. If you recycle villains into agents, then you're turning a liability into an asset. Waller pitches this part of the plan repeatedly. I want to build a team of some very bad people who I think can do some good. And I'm sure with just a little imagination, you could come up with additional issues with this on a broad basis, and not just character-specific issues like Aquaman's bad attitude or Bruce Wayne's billions of dollars. Many of those reasons carry over to the selection of elite soldiers. Soldiers are already an asset. Putting them in the squad is just impoverishing an existing unit committed to the security of the United States. Soldiers' chain of command does not end with Waller. Soldiers are already legitimately tied to the government and harder to disclaim. Waller isn't trying to replace the conventional soldier entirely but to offer some new added value. That value proposition wasn't enough without the metahuman angle, and that's why her first pitch was declined. Soldiers may not operate on leverage, but they operate on patriotism, which is close enough for the military's purpose. But Waller wasn't satisfied. She believes her god of leverage can produce even more obedient, more effective, no-questions-asked assets for national security, willing to go further and do more than out of friendship or patriotism. In some ways, Deadshot is a perfect example. He's worth more than any and all of Flag's tier 1 pipe hitters on a mission with the right application of leverage. Waller can't help but gloat to Flag. You wouldn't have made it without them. The model soldier, the super patriot Flag, immediately talks back and questions Waller. But when it comes to the squad, all Waller has to do is lift up her smartphone and all questions are silenced. In her mind, the squad is an added value alternative over an ordinary soldier, and she exploits the metahuman situation to make her plan a reality. Soldiers supplanting the squad is a misplaced criticism. It's not that soldiers can't do what the squad did. Although arguably they can't, after all Waller does say, Flag get out of there.
4: We're not here to fight them, we know that doesn't work.
0: And then when Flag is forced to confess, he says, Three days ago, a non-human entity appeared in the subway. So it's not like the military hasn't sent soldiers into Midway during those three days. It's that the soldiers bring nothing to the table that they don't already have. The military already has soldiers. Waller's squad provides units leveraged beyond the patriotism of a soldier, at the expense of expendable convicts, and with Meta-human powers to boot. Waller wants to field test her squad. Flag is against it. And again, to him, the squad makes no sense. To him, they're a liability. They're his problem.
3: This is the deal. You're going somewhere very bad to do something that'll get you killed. But until that happens... You're my problem.
0: But to Waller, they're proof of concept with respect to the power of leverage. The power of suppressing the human and the metahuman, to wield the meta as she wants. The power of turning anyone into an asset. The squad's mix of membership is a slice of the disenfranchised and inhuman who could be enslaved in the future. The mentally ill, the physical freaks, the desperate and the criminal. In the vacuum without Superman and the ability to exploit metahuman powers against their will makes Waller's plan marketable again. If you're promising the possibility of delivering internal intelligence on any enemy agency in the world, the government is going to overlook the fact that you're using a slave to do it. Waller, however, is less interested in the powers themselves, but in how to obtain leverage over individuals. That's why she's the puppet master. That's why she makes a point of it in her pitch. That's why she shows off her control over Enchantress in the Situation Room. That's why she wants to know from Flag how Enchantress gamed the system, how she beat her leverage. That's why she offers Deadshot his freedom even if she can bring down Joker with just her radio. That's why she tries to tempt Deadshot into shooting Griggs. And that's why she stayed behind to study Enchantress. And why she's enthralled by her ability to create an instant army. Soldiers are always available, but what's impressive is the turning. Taking an average, disloyal person and making them someone useful to Enchantress. That's the power that Waller wants. Waller can be compared to Enchantress. Both take those in the world and uses them as soldiers. Both have their heavy hitters and their lesser legions. Both have their machinations and larger plans beyond their immediate mission. Both have their weak points and actually care about others. Waller seems to have photos of family and Enchantress cares for her brother. Both know more than we the audience know. Both offer dreams of freedom to the squad. Both kill without compunction and can put up a fight. Both are ruthless, but imperfect, and both needed others to get where they are. Waller needed Batman to catch her squad and approval for her plan. Enchantress needed June to inhabit and her brother to save her. Both think that they have more sway than they do. Deadshot rebels against Waller's wishes and Harley rebels against Enchantress's offer. So there's something there, something to that which I can't quite put my finger on yet, but it seems in a very loose sense that Waller wants to be able to command loyalty like Enchantress maybe. We don't know, especially since we're explicitly told it's need to know in this movie. And for the purposes of this movie, we literally do not need to know. But at least it's an attempt at actually listening to what the movie has to say. And the movie says that Waller is really up to something besides the surface level logistics of the Suicide Squad. Okay, I know I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC film. Justice League Universe apologist signing off. See you next time.
3: You're the answer, son.
4: Johnny said, well you're pretty good, old son But sit down in that chair right there And let me show you how it's done Fire on the mountain, run, boys, run The devil's in the house of the rising sun Chicken in the bread pan, picking out dough Granny, there's a dog back, no child, no Devil bowed his head because he knew that he'd been beat And he laid that golden fiddle on the ground at Johnny's feet Johnny said, Devil, just come on back if you ever want to try again Cause I told you once, you son of a gun, I'm the best there's ever been He played found on the mountain, run, boys, run Devil's in the house of the rising sun the Chicken in the bread, better picking out dough where you don't no child knows
3: the answer, son.
0: Okay. I think that's enough theory, abstraction, and groundwork. We've touched on the answers, but just to make them a little more concrete, let's attack them in an FAQ. Question. Can this squad stop Superman? Answer. Yes. At the time of this pitch, Enchantress was a part of the squad and could arguably be effective against Superman. That said, the question is misplaced, because that was just the elevator pitch, not what actually being bought or even the actual plan. When Midway City is actually faced with an NHE attack, Waller only sends Enchantress in, not the rest of the squad. Question. What is the purpose of the rest of the squad? Answer. Their purpose exists in the unspoken pitch and in Waller's unknown intentions. The squad has no overt purpose in the Superman pitch. And again, Waller never sends them against the NHE. In the unspoken pitch, they are meant to establish a precedent of conscription over convicts with special skills and abilities. Deadshot is probably the perfect example of the kind of convict the program is meant to harness in Waller's mind. Whereas Enchantress is the a perfect example of the kind of meta the program is meant to enslave
3: magic or not this girl can do some pretty incredible things
0: question What use is Harley, Boomerang, Killer Croc, or Slipknot? Answer, in most cases, they're all targets of opportunity. Waller only intentionally went after Deadshot, Enchantress, and Flag. Everyone else just happened to already be in the penal system, by the time Waller made her second pitch. From the unspoken pitch, the point of these others is essentially cannon fodder. The pretense that this is about getting some good use out of bad guys, when it's really about metahumans that the government can exploit. we can use their membership to speculate on what Waller was really up to. So question, what's Waller really up to? answer, these additional convicts may be Waller's attempt to expand the edges of the program beyond just criminals. If she can harness Harley Quinn, then she can start to recruit the mentally ill, the criminally insane, and the institutionalized. Maybe all of Arkham Asylum is now on the table. If she can harness Harkness, then she can argue for an expansion of jurisdiction to cover more foreign nationals. After all, Australia has more claim to Digger than she does. If he works out, then Waller won't have to just draft Americans. Maybe they can bag and tag Atlanteans or someone from Karak. If she can harness Killer Croc, she can start to round up the freaks, misfits, and outcasts rejected from normal society. She can pull from the circus, the sewers, and the scientific accidents gone awry, and so on.
4: What's a freak show doing in the middle of nowhere?
10: You're one to talk lizard lips. June, he's a guest. Our circus days are over. We used the money we earned to buy this farm so we could live in peace
2: this is a sanctuary not only for us but for all our kind if you're willing to join in the work you too are welcome here
0: You put them all together on a mission that isn't meant to fail, and you let them collectively claim credit for the success. Make the government comfortable with these kinds of people on missions, and slowly make headway into harnessing other disenfranchised populations for your project. Especially with the temptation of metahuman powers, the government is going to give Waller more and more leeway to conscript people against their will. And at least in the context of the movie, note that Enchantress isn't a known criminal or convict, and neither Neither is June Moon, yet both are essentially enslaved to Waller because of the potential power they offer the government. In this specific case Waller has the heart, and June is somewhat willing. But what if the next human isn't a criminal, isn't willing, and doesn't have their heart on a platter? Waller wants to expand her authority to include crazies, foreigners, freaks, and more, whether they're convicts or not. That's why she picks the people that she does, and that's what she's really up to. Maybe. Question Why is Katana on the squad? Answer For the reason stated, she's there to watch Flag's back. This
2: is Katana. She's got my back. I would advise not getting killed by her. Her sword traps the souls of its victims.
0: Note that this seems to be mission specific. She's here to babysit a fledgling force on a mission meant to succeed. She's there because she's killed criminals before and comfortable with their deaths. She establishes the existence of magic and the supernatural to a crew that's already wise to the weird. She establishes that souls and the afterlife are a thing, meaning that they can face a fate worse than death. And she brings a magic weapon onto a battlefield with an enemy that's already repelled conventional forces. More on that later. What is the squad's purpose generally? answer, it's the start of a metahuman arms race. Again, it isn't to stop Superman. That's the threat, the pitch, not reality. Like fearing saboteurs in the New York Harbor ends up authorizing working with Lucky Luciano, it didn't matter if the saboteurs were real or if Luciano was stopping them. The plan was just one step and one measure. No one expects Bat Bombs to win the war single-handedly, and no one expects Harley Quinn to end the next Superman, even if that's ultimately what happens. Superman is just the excuse to open up their minds, but even then, no one actually bought it. Not even Waller, who didn't send anyone but Enchantress against the N.H.E. What the government bought was the unspoken pitch: metahuman slaves in an arms race against others. The project is to establish protocols over a more mundane metahuman team as they continue to kick up rocks looking for metahumans. If Midway hadn't happened, they would have done testing, refinement, and iteration. Almost every other representation of the squad that you've seen elsewhere in tradition is of a polished program already up and running in a universe where metahumans have been active for decades. This is a presentation of a plan at its infancy, with growing pains and all, lying by the seat of its pants. Okay, next question, why aren't elite soldiers satisfactory to Waller? answer, we don't know for certain. My theory is that Waller is worshipping her god of leverage. She starts with the premise of convicts, because those are individuals that you already have leverage over. Their crimes have revoked their liberty, their freedom, and so Waller tries to take their free will too. And she wants to expand that leverage to people beyond just convicts. The metahuman angle is just her excuse to do it, but she's already interested in this before Superman's situation opened the door for this new pitch. Waller views leverage as even Even better than patriotism. Running on patriotism alone, Flag rebels against her repeatedly. He challenges her, he doubts her, he tries to set the squad free. And it's only when Waller has or applies leverage through June that she can get Flag to back down or shut up. Flag wants to know what she's really up to, and Waller threatens June and Flag backs off. Flag wants to take Waller to task over sticking around, and Waller raises June, so Flag backs off. If only Waller could leverage absolute obedience out of Deadshot he'd be the perfect poster boy for her project. Deadshot is almost equivalent to a squad of pipe hitters on his own, and the military didn't have to train him, invest in him, or bring him up. They could just subject him to prison conditions for nine months, and he's ready to rock and roll right out of the box, with a little leverage. Even if the rest of the candidates are imperfect or less impressive, and you'd want to argue that they're less valuable than a single soldier, consider what it costs to convert them into a semi-valuable soldier compared to all the resources, and paperwork surrounding a real soldier. So former liabilities leveraged into incredible assets. That seems to be Waller's real ambition, only she underestimates the power of friendship. And yes, I said that with a straight face. (laughs) Okay, next question. What is their mission specifically? Answer to rescue Waller. That's it.
1: For those of you who don't know me officially, my name is Amanda Waller. There's an event in Midway City. I want you to enter the city, rescue HVT-1, and get them to safety.
0: Their mission is to get to HVT-1, secure the LZ for a helo extraction. If they can get to HVT-1 by air without getting shot down, they would have landed on the roof, secured it, and swept the floors down to HVT-1 and extracted Waller. Their mission is not to fight the siblings or rescue June that we know of, but it certainly turns into that. But I believe Waller and Flag are sincere in having the squad go home in Savior 1, if Joker hadn't jacked their ride. It would have gone down as a successful mission, and a win for Task Force X, allowing Waller to build its reputation and reach inside the covered op community. If the claim is that it's an easy mission, well, so what? Waller wants the win for her fledgling program. And if the claim is that it's an impossible mission, well, then Waller's putting her money where her mouth is in establishing the viability of her project. Question. Who shot down the first helo? Answer, the eyes of the adversary with weapons. I think it might have been intentionally obscured by the editing. We're more comfortable with the EAs as mindless minions, but tools and weapons might contradict that. Even so, there are clues that they can use weapons. First, in the firefight where Diablo finally uses his powers, if they weren't being fired upon, there'd be little urgency for him to use his powers. And second, after coming to the safe room, we get this exchange. Flag says, alright, secure the roof. Sweep for shooters so we can bring in our aviation assets. GQ, going to the roof. The city is littered with three days worth of downed aircraft, so this is a known danger not limited to Waller's extraction. Question. Why would you send another helicopter in if they're getting downed? Answer. It's still the best of many bad options. Whatever threats you face in a helo are multiplied tenfold on the ground. In the real world, we still perform helo extractions on downed helicopters. In the 1993 Battle of Mogadishu, adapted in the book Black Hawk Down and the movie of the same name, when a Black Hawk helicopter went down, several rescue attempts were made using other Blackhawks and Little Birds. A second Blackhawk was shot down, but the US military continued to insert support by way of aerial vehicles. In all, two Blackhawks were downed, and three others were damaged. This wasn't because they were blind to the risk or foolish. The fact that their helos could have been downed didn't suddenly make a ground assault any more viable. Just because there are risks and costs doesn't mean that you can take your most viable plan off the table. The only other plan that might make more sense is some sort of Halo insertion, but it isn't too hard to come up with some off-screen reasons why that wouldn't work. The squad lacks that training, and soldiers with Halo training probably have already tried and died in the previous three days. Question. Why was GQ and his men on this mission? Answer. To support and complete the mission. Every pie-in-the-sky prototype gets fielded with and alongside conventional forces. It's not either-or, it's almost always both. Question. Don't they compromise the squad's covert status? Answer. No, not any more than any other mission. The squad is always going to need military support and infrastructure. They can't be inserted without it. It's not like they're going to secretly march out of the swamp every time need arrives. It takes military deployment to get them to the target. In this specific case, the city's already been evacuated for three days. GQ doesn't know what's going on in the city, so the flow of information is contaminated. The covert status is also a principle, not an absolute, summed up by need to know. So that conditional is fluid. They know what they need to, and if that changes, it changes. People criticizing compromised confidentiality as if it were an absolute binary are applying it absurdly. Question. Isn't this expending soldiers for the squad? Answer. Sort of. Someone was going to go in and get Waller regardless. In Waller's mind, soldiers are already expendable. I mean, everyone is. Superman, June, her texts, flag, the squad, etc. They allotted the manpower needed to accomplish the mission. If it wasn't the squad, it was going to be more soldiers regardless. What the critic is doing is confusing one of the benefits of the squad with their mandate for every mission. It's not the function of the Suicide Squad to die. It's just less tragic when they do because they're the dregs of society from Waller's point of view. Yes, the squad can be expendable, but that doesn't mean that that's their primary or sole purpose, and that every mission that they go on must showcase how expendable they are. It's simply an additional trait or advantage that they have if the occasion should arise. If you own an off-road vehicle, that doesn't mean that you have to ignore the roads and drive your vehicle through rocks and rivers and mud every time it leaves the garage just to pick the kids up from school. In fact, it's completely normal to take advantage of the conventional roads and to rarely, if ever, use that off-road capability. Question, wouldn't two squads of soldiers be better? Answer, not according to the movie, but even applying real-world logic, not according to Waller's supreme interests. According to the movie, we get an explicit hold-your-hand-and-spoon-feed-you dialogue indicating the ineffectiveness of conventional forces. In the Situation Room, worldwide military is on alert. Our weapons are ineffective. In the field, Waller says, We're not here to fight them. We know that doesn't work. In practice, we see the military unable to fight Incubus, and retake the city after three days. And we know that Bravo squad is captured and converted. So the film is telling us that conventional forces are ineffective. Even if you want to argue that they should be more effective, again there's plenty of historical precedent for pairing conventional forces with prototypes. You don't just forgo the prototype because you have conventional forces, but you don't also rely on just the prototype. You field both at the same time. even. if Waller thought a second squad of soldiers would have been some percentage more effective or pragmatic, as long as her squad was capable of completing the mission, she has many reasons to prefer them. As we said before, it puts a win in their column. It also acts as a real live field test opportunity unlike any you'd ever have. And finally, the squad are entirely under her own authority. GQ and his men can go home in the end. Unless the squad are utterly incapable of completing the mission, Waller's inclusion of them was plausible. Remember, best case scenario, the mission is just securing one rooftop and clearing a few floors. Easy peasy. Question. Why couldn't conventional soldiers win if bombs are effective? Answer. For Incubus, the bomb came after Diablo burnt his heart out with supernatural fire. For the machine, they were inside the machine. So to briefly elaborate, we're told that normal weapons won't work, and in fact we see this in battle. Incubus takes on gunfire and gunships and isn't phased. shot unloads automatic fire into the back of enchantress's head and she doesn't even flinch instead the actual damage we've seen is done by magic
4: magic must defeat magic magic must defeat magic see what have we learned
0: magic Magic must defeat defeat magic. magic Katana can cut the arm of Incubus. Harley uses the same sword to cut Enchantress. Diablo is able to bring Incubus to his knees, make him roar in pain, and burn out his heart. Although Incubus started to recover, he's still obviously weakened. You can see his chest regenerating, and he doesn't have the strength to stop or kill Diablo in an instant. Only in that state, only after being compromised by magic, is Incubus susceptible to conventional force. The same thing happens to Enchantress. She's effectively invisible, invincible to their attacks, but the magic sword is able to access her heart. And at that point, conventional force can defeat Enchantress. Flag can crush the heart with his bare hands. But wait, what about Deadshot's shot? Well, there's no magic there, so why is that effective? Well, they aren't blowing up a magical entity, they were blowing up a machine. And machines are susceptible to machines, just not necessarily all over. We might analogize the machine to a tank. It can survive or repel attack from without, but it's easily undone from within. This is suggesting that the machine's external immunity to conventional weapons is innate to its mechanics, and not the same kind of magical immunity shared by the siblings. And that's not too unconventional an idea in this universe. It's never explicitly stated for the World Engine like it is for the Black Zero, but the sci-fi machines seem to be innately immune to conventional angles of attack. And while it isn't in the movie, it is in the novelization that they did try to nuke the machine, only for their warheads to be caught in the floating debris field. Question, why weren't the supernatural siblings more effective? Answer, they weren't trying to be. Naturally, seeing the US military completely ineffective makes it hard for us to see the squad as having a fighting chance. If Incubus was as effective as he was in the subway, the squad would have been cut down immediately. And if Enchantress waved away their weapons from the start, they wouldn't have had to cross swords. So the key here is to pay attention to the dialogue. Enchantress says, brother, may them bow to me. Incubus isn't trying to kill them, or even KO them. This dutiful brother is being careful with these delicate mortals so that their submission can satisfy his sister. If Enchantress wanted them dead, they'd be dead in an instant. That's not what she wants. Despite her anger at enslavement, she still wants worthy worshippers in the end. The metahumans are the dawn of a new age, and she's looking for worthy and like-minded allies. And I swear, it seems like some critics just ignored all of Enchantress's lines, so I'm just going to read them. I've been waiting for you all night. Step out of the shadows. I won't bite. Why are you here? Because the soldier led you? And all for Waller. Why do you serve those who cage you? I am your ally. And I know what you want. Exactly what you want. It is our time. The sun is setting. The magic rises and the metahumans are a sign of change. Of all who have faced me, you have earned mercy. For the last time, join me or die. This isn't the Enchantress episode, but if you take her at face value, she isn't trying to harm them. She's been waiting all night, suggesting that the squad's effectiveness might have been at her behest. She says that she won't bite, and until they kill her brother, she doesn't. She explicitly says she's their ally and sympathizes with their enslavement. She marks them as a new dawn along with herself. She's the magic, they're the metas. She admires their valor, wants them to join, and even in the end, calls. Harley, her dearest. There is a lot packed into there, and a ton with respect to her visions and her powers, but that's another show. So, just a few more questions. Next, question, how did Deadshot set off the C4? Answer, he hit the detonator. If you didn't know, C4 is a highly stable plastic explosive that doesn't go off even thrown in a fire or hit with a bullet. However, C4 is set off with a smaller, less stable explosive, which is relatively tiny, often just the size of a pencil. Not the kind of shot that an ordinary, Soldier could hit, but something that Deadshot could do. Next, question Why did Bruce need Waller's files? Answer He needs them to know what Waller knows. It isn't about finding the Flash or Aquaman. He's the world's greatest detective, and with Lex's files, he would find them eventually. Remember that he only ran into Diana at the library fundraiser, but he was able to find her at the museum function all on his own. No files necessary. Critics forget this and just assume an error in intention instead of thinking once step further. If Bruce can already track down Barry and Arthur, what can Waller tell him that he can't figure out on his own? Well, Waller can show what they know. And why does Bruce want that? He says it. He likes to make friends. And what does Bruce do for his friends? He protects and helps the ones they care about. That's how Bruce introduces himself to Clark's mother when he rescues her. That's how Bruce helps out with the funeral expenses. That's what he's gonna do for Waller. It's okay. I'm a friend of your sons.
6: I figured. The cape... Oh, I need a ride back to the house. I forgot my checkbook to pay the funeral director.
0: They said it's all taken care of. By whom? Anonymous donor. The very conversation that they're in could have been all about extortion or leverage. Waller could have said, protect me or I'll reveal your identity. And Bruce could have said, give me your files or I'll reveal your involvement. Instead, Bruce comes with an offer of service and protection with a warning at the end. Bruce needs these files to lay the groundwork on how he's going to protect his future friends and teammates. And for all we know, this is that exchange. Maybe this is Waller not just giving up a copy, but actually giving up her files. The point is, you don't need to assume that it's about finding them or assume redundancy with Lex's files. It isn't hard at all to imagine plausible alternatives if you're not looking to find fault or make up criticisms. And that pretty much covers the next question. Question, where was the flash? Answer, figure it out. <laughs> I think we've already discussed this in a previous episode when talking about why Superman wasn't saving Midway. You can go back and listen to that discussion, or you can think it through on your own. I'm going to be equally glib about the next question. Question, why didn't Waller destroy Enchantress's heart immediately? Answer, the same reason Enchantress didn't immediately execute the squad. She essentially says this to Flag that she stayed to study Enchantress. And it seems that Waller wasn't willing to give up on the incredible potential of Enchantress just yet. It's not a good reason, but Waller is not a good person. (laughs) And don't fall for that sort of equivocation of terms. If Waller is willing to stab the heart to death, then why isn't she willing to just destroy the heart outright? And you have to track what Waller knows and how that might impact her intentions. You don't just blindly apply a rule and then say the willingness to kill Enchantress means a willingness to kill her under any and every circumstance. The problem is that it's fuzzy what Waller does does and doesn't know, when she knows it, how she knows it, and how much she knows. We know that Waller doesn't know Incubus was tied to Enchantress at first. We know that Waller stabs the heart repeatedly. We don't know if Waller was using the stabs because she considers it a continuum of graduated force, a rather extreme one, but less than say, blowing it up or crushing it into dust. Or if Waller intends to kill Enchantress. The novelization suggests the latter. In either case, we don't know when Waller learns that she failed. Waller knows, she stabbed Enchantress to death and that was the end. The heart is still a magical artifact, so no reason to destroy it any further, they could just save it for future study. This gets muddled by the fact that when Waller later meets Flag, it's clear that she knows Enchantress is alive and responsible for transforming people into EAs. So at some point, Waller gained additional intelligence and it changed the question such that Waller didn't want Enchantress dead anymore. There are too many unknowns to figure out these logistics concretely, but for now, I put it somewhere between a deterrent to keep Enchantress from coming after her, and wanting to study and somehow appropriate Enchantress's power. Now that's a messy answer, but with thoughtfulness and revision and introspection, you can probably refine it. Let's move on to our final messy question for this episode. I know that there are a million other questions, and this episode does not intend to answer them all, but asks instead that instead of assuming error, you take stock of the facts, recall dialogue, don't inst- insist on fixed rules and look back at prior history and precedent. So let's apply all of that for our final question. Question. Why didn't Waller guard Enchantress more carefully? Answer. Hubris and overconfidence. This question is meant to encompass the many complaints about Waller holding onto the heart and the second jar. The critics leap to the end result and assume that Waller could have and should have foreseen the escape exactly as it happened and taken precautions against it. While there are four main to those criticisms. It ignores Waller's ignorance. It ignores Waller's interests. It ignores Waller's precautions. And it ignores real-world precedent. Let's break those down. In terms of information, a fair evaluation doesn't apply hindsight bias or judge Waller using information that she didn't know or couldn't have known. Remember that everything Waller knows is from ancient lore, coming from people who managed to seal up Enchantress the first time. But we don't know what that lore is. Waller can't be expected to anticipate utter unknowns. She doesn't know the brother could save Enchantress from a stabbed heart if she knows about the brother at all. She can't have a contingency for something she doesn't know is possible. In terms of interests, remember that Waller is proud that the witch is in her pocket. It's important to Waller to personally maintain this power. Hypothetically, she could let others guard the heart or store the jar elsewhere, but that is also handing power over the witch to someone else. Giving the heart to the government is inviting the them to cut her out of the process. Giving the jar to the government, something proven to seal up these entities in the past, is paramount to turning over Kryptonite to her Superman. It goes against Waller's interests and characterizations to turn that leverage over to another. This is a woman willing to allow Enchantress rampage in a modern city. Willing to stick around. Willing to sacrifice her techs. Willing to sacrifice Bravo Squad. Willing to let untold amounts of people die, just so she can observe Enchantress a little longer. This is not someone who blanches at a little risk for the sake of maintaining her own edge. And it's not like Waller didn't take precautions. She did. She had contingencies. Flag was meant to be her early warning system. The suitcase was meant to detect and detonate if Enchantress ever tried to approach it. Waller herself would put an end to Enchantress if she stepped out of line. Finally, June could be put into sedation if Flag wouldn't play watchdog. They're not the greatest or the most comprehensive contingencies, but they're they're sufficient and they prove themselves in all the time that Enchantress was under her thumb. And there is no way to actually guard the heart. As proven by the stolen plans from Tehran, there is no place on earth the heart could be stored that Enchantress couldn't reach. The only real security against Enchantress is leveraging a threat against the heart to force compliance. And that's what Waller did. And that's not a lever that her characterization would let her give up to another. Even if Waller knew that the jar contained another entity, the same logic applies she wouldn't want to turn over that power or vulnerability to anyone else. Even if she knew exactly what was in it, there's no contingency against it except to threaten Enchantress's life, and that's exactly the contingency that Waller went with. Finally, the critics raising Waller's mistake as implausible because of the high stakes and the danger involved, well first, again there's no indication that Waller knew that this was something that Enchantress was capable of. If she knew everything that Enchantress was capable of, she wouldn't have marveled at her instant army. So, So, So this is the critic imputing their knowledge after the fact to a Waller who had no way of knowing the same. Second, this completely ignores all the real world history and precedent that makes this entirely plausible. The film is reflecting the real world and just because it's something that people shouldn't do, doesn't make it something that people never or don't do. While Waller didn't have a full grasp of the destructive potential Enchantress had, we can look at our real world handling of nuclear weapons and see if they are handled with any more care. all our nuclear testing and after using the atomic bomb in war, there is no question about whether we're dealing with a weapon of mass destruction. Nonetheless, even with that knowledge, the measures around nukes has been incredibly lax.
6: During the height of the Cold War, the US military put such an emphasis on rapid response to an attack on American soil that to minimize any foreseeable delay in launching a nuclear missile for nearly two decades, they intentionally set the launch codes at every silo in the United States to a string of there was particularly a concern that the nuclear missiles the United States had stationed in other countries, some of which had somewhat unstable leaderships, could potentially be seized by those governments and launched. Beyond foreign seizure, there was also the problem that many US commanders had the ability to launch nukes under their control at any time. Just one commanding officer who wasn't quite right in the head and World War 3 begins. This system was supposed to be essentially wire proof making sure only Only people with the correct codes could activate the nuclear weapons and launch the missiles. However, though the devices were supposed to be fitted on every nuclear missile, the military continually dragged its heels on the matter. In fact, it was noted that a full 20 years after JFK had ordered PALs to be fitted to every nuclear device, half of the missiles in Europe were still protected by simple mechanical locks. Most that did have the new system in place weren't even activated until 1977. The code to launch the missiles, all 50 of them, was set to eight zeros. Oh, and in case you actually did forget the code, it was handily written down on a checklist handed out to soldiers. This ensured that there was no need to wait for presidential confirmation that would have just wasted valuable Russian nuking time. Dr. Blair is the one who broke this 8-0's news to the world. Dr. Blair had previously made waves in 1977 when he wrote another article entitled, The Terrorist Threat to World Nuclear Programs. He decided to outline it for the public in this 1977 article, where he described how just four people acting in tandem could easily activate a nuclear launch in the silos he had worked in. He also noted how virtually anyone who asked for permission to tour the launch facility was granted it with little to no background checks performed. So, to recap, for around 20 years the Strategic Air Commands went out of their way to make launching a nuclear missile as easy and quick as possible. History is so often stranger than fiction.
0: Okay, but that's just siloed nukes. That doesn't mean that we've handled them poorly, right? Well you may have heard the term broken out.
8: Broken what? Broken Arrow. It's a class 4 strategic theater emergency. That's what we call it when we lose a nuclear weapon.
6: I don't know what's scarier losing nuclear weapons, but that it happens so often there's actually a term for it. In
0: 1961, we nearly nuked ourselves.
10: According to a recently declassified report, the U.S. Air Force had an incident in which the two atomic bombs were released after a B-52 plane carrying them went into a tailspin during a routine test flight. One of the two bombs on board was actually in an armed setting by the time it hit the ground near Goldsboro, North Carolina, and it should have detonated, but it was spared because of one low-voltage switch that failed to activate properly. Adam
0: West relates more about the Goldsboro incident. It is calculated
1: that a bomb of this size detonated over Detroit would result in almost two million casualties and over a million injuries.
0: Here's Eric Slosher. According
3: to the Pentagon, there have been 33 broken arrows in the history of our nuclear program. That's the official number. But I feel very confident in saying it's a lot more than 33. I got a document through the Freedom of Information Act that lists more than a 1,000 accidents and incidents involving nuclear weapons just between 1950, and 1968. Palomares, Spain. During an aerial refueling, the tanker and the bomber uh, had a collision and it dropped four hydrogen bombs over Spain. Maintenance work is being done on an atomic bomb and the worker doesn't realize that one of the pins in the plug of the testing equipment is bent. When he plugs the pin into the atomic bomb, it fully arms the bomb and nearly detonates the bomb, which would have destroyed a large part of the Coast. This technology has constantly been on the verge of slipping out of our control.
6: You're probably thinking, OK, all right, we nearly blew up one of the Carolinas, but that's basically why we have two. But in that case, how about that one time we risked blowing up Arkansas?
3: Someone dropped a socket in the silo, and the socket fell about 70 feet, pierced the missile, caused a fuel leak, and then there was a huge explosion.
6: Just think about the system we have designed. In the rock-paper-scissors logic, socket beats nuclear missile. (laughs) And and if that feels too much like ancient history to you, here is something from as recently as 2007. Six nuclear-tipped cruise missiles were loaded
3: onto a B-52
9: by mistake, flown across the country and left unguarded on the tarmac.
6: No one noticed for 36 hours. (laughs) And that must have been a hell of a moment when they realized.
0: Anyone alleging that Enchantress would have been more carefully controlled doesn't know our history with nukes. Our history of WMD mismanagement makes Waller's handling of Enchantress spot on, if not allegorical. Again, it's not what people should do, but it's what people actually do, and the movie realistically reflects that. The inability to handle such terrible power within the institution of government is why we need a Justice League. That said, I don't want you to come away thinking that the military is nothing but its mistakes. It's easy to get cynical about the ugly sides of the military, but let's not forget the honorable side of Service too. The Suicide Squad was inspired by the Dirty Dozen, which was inspired by the real-world filthy
2: Jack McNeese led a group of paratroopers who earned the nickname the Filthy Thirteen. Their exploits inspired a popular movie. The real Jake McNeese, though, was no less colorful than the character Lee Marvin played. On the eve of the Normandy invasion in 1944, his men jumped behind German lines. Some called it a suicide mission. For the D-Day jump, McNeese shaved his head and painted his face. The look caught on with his men. And
1: that went along with just a lot of disregard for general military discipline
2: Jake McNeese said the filthy 13 got away with a lot of stunts after D-day McNeese helped resupply troops in the Battle of the Bulge and took on other tough assignments he received four bronze stars two arrowhead bronzes and he was appointed a knight a Chevalier of the French Legion of Honor
0: it's important to say that the filthy 13 were not criminal conscripts but they were a true suicide squad
1: McNeese says what he experienced was very real and still gives him nightmares.
2: I jumped into Normandy on D-Day with 20 men and in three hours I was down to 17 killed or captured. Only three of us left.
0: Although Waller believes in leverage, the squad shows that even a fast friendship and a sudden surrogate family can be stronger. A league of super friends are going to establish that even further. It's kind of crazy that some critics have adopted Waller's philosophy of terror as if great art comes out of leverage, fear, and worry. I question that. Instead, I think our most extraordinary selves come out for the sake of others. For an example of somebody whose service wouldn't have come from leverage but instead from love and loyalty. To close out this episode, here's the story... Of Roy Benavides,
1: Master Sergeant Roy Benavides, recipient of the Medal of Honor and American hero. His father is a Mexican farmer, and his mother a Yaki Indian. In 1965, Benavides is sent to Vietnam. He steps on a landmine. He's paralyzed from the waist down. His doctors tell him he will never walk again. But at night, when his doctors aren't around, Benavides slides out of bed and crawls to a wall, pulling himself forward by. his elbows and his chin. It's excruciatingly painful. When he reaches the wall, he sets himself up against it and backs up against the wall into a standing position. And he stands there, moving his toes back and forth, left and right. He wants to walk again. He wants to go back to Vietnam. He's motivated by the injured soldiers streaming into the hospital on a regular basis. And he remembers what he learned in special forces training, that faith determination, and a positive attitude will carry you further than ability. He's told you can do it So he slips out of bed, crawls to the wall. Every night, every chance he gets, after nine months, when his doctor comes to discharge him, Benavides musters all of his strength and fights through the pain to prove to his doctor that he will walk again. Benavides jumps out of bed and walks out of the hospital room, much to his doctor's surprise. He's sent back to Fort Bragg, where he runs five miles a day, sometimes 10 miles a day. He does 100 push-ups a day, and by the time he does three training jumps in one day, he's ready to go go back to Vietnam. Sergeant Roy Benavides has been back a few days earlier. He's inserted behind enemy lines with a buddy to gather intelligence. His buddy is shot and Benavides calls for an extraction. The helicopter hovers overhead and Benavides and his buddy hook on. They're pulled up, but the nylon lines get twisted together and start burning. A non-commissioned officer riding in the back of the helicopter sees the trouble and under enemy fire, the NCO ties a rope around his own waist, climbs out of the helicopter mid-flight and separates the lines. Benavides and his buddy make it back to base. On May 2nd, 1968, Benavides is in the staging area when he hears a call come in on the radio. A special forces patrol in the jungle is surrounded by the enemy and taking heavy fire. A helicopter lands carrying some of the mortally wounded. Benavides asks the pilot, whose patrol is it out there? He's told it's the NCO who saved his life the other day. Without stopping to think, Benavides grabs a medical kit and gets on the next helicopter heading into the action.
8: Armed with only a knife, Roy jumped into a helicopter and took off with a three-man crew to rescue his trapped comrades. When they arrived at the battle, the enemy was too numerous for the helicopter to evacuate the surrounded soldiers. It had to land 75 yards away from their position. After making the sign of the cross, Sergeant Benavides jumped out of the helicopter as it hovered 10 feet above the ground and ran towards his comrades carrying his knife, and a medic bag. He was shot almost immediately,
1: but he got up and kept moving. Under enemy small arms fire, taking bullets to the leg, face, and head. But Benavides is no stranger to pain.
8: He armed himself with an enemy rifle and began to treat the wounded, distribute ammunition, and call in airstrikes. He was
1: shot again.
8: He then ordered the helicopter to come in closer as he dragged the dead and wounded aboard.
1: After he got all the wounded aboard, he then runs alongside the helicopter, providing cover fire as it moves to pick up the remaining team members. Benavides is shot in the stomach and takes grenade shrapnel to his back. At that same moment, the pilot is mortally wounded and the helicopter crashes. Benavides makes his way to the wreckage and helps the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and organizes a defensive perimeter around it. He distributes water and ammunition to the tired and weak men, and he motivates them, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight.
8: And radioed for airstrikes and another helicopter. He kept fighting until air support arrived.
1: He calls in airstrikes on the growing number of enemy forces closing in on the team in order to open a window for another extraction attempt. He continues to take hits as he tends to the wounded. He's an unstoppable force with an indomitable spirit. Finally, after another helicopter lands, Benavides carries his fallen comrades and the wounded to the aircraft. On one of his trips to the helicopter, he's clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier.
8: A North Vietnamese soldier clubbed him with his rifle and stabbed him with a bayonet.
1: In hand-to-hand combat, he's hit in the mouth with the butt of a weapon before he kills his adversary. After that, he makes more trips to the helicopter, brings more wounded to the extraction point, and on his last trip, he gathers or destroys all the classified material he can find. Only then does he allow himself to be rescued, loaded into the helicopter, holding his guts in his hands. Back at base, he's pulled off the helicopter and laid on the ground. He's lying on the ground there, blood all over his face, his eyes eyes stuck closed by dried blood, his jaw locked shut from that hit he takes in the mouth, his guts on the wrong side of his skin. He feels his feet being lifted up, and he can feel them being slipped inside a body bag. He hears the zipper and feels the body bag close around him tighter and tighter. Above the sound of the zipper getting closer, he hears one of his buddies yelling at the doctor, That's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor tells his buddies, Sorry, there's nothing I can do. The zipper keeps coming closer, and the buddy insists he take one more look. The doctor stops and puts his hand on Benavides' chest to feel for a heartbeat. Benavides musters up All the energy he has left and does the only thing he can do. He spits in the doctor's face. Benavides is in the hospital for another year, recovering this time from shrapnel wounds, bayonet wounds, blunt trauma, and 37 bullet wounds. Sergeant Roy Benavides is awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions on that day in 1968, is presented the Medal of Honor by President Reagan in 1981. In his retirement, Master Sergeant Roy Benavides Vitas gives motivational speeches and writes three books about his extraordinary life before passing away in 1998. you the answer, son.
5: And you're standing in the front row, wanna be first in line, waiting by my window, giving me all your time. You could be my hero, if only I could let go. But his love still in me like a broken arrow. Oh, oh, like a broken arrow. Oh,
7: oh, oh. You're the answer, son.